From UNH Cooperative Extension, this is Relative to New Hampshire. Step into the classroom and listen in while a group of UNH students explore the underlying aspects of current issues under consideration at New Hampshire's State House. We pick apart those issues and connect with experts all to share with you insights from our scientific community that enhance our understanding of the biological world right here in New Hampshire, home of the greatest democracy in the world. I'm your moderator, Dr. Anna-Kate Wallingford, and I am diving into the archives to share with you the work of last year's class of science liaisons, well, Extension's first class of science liaisons, actually, from the spring of 2020. This project remains a rather experimental project, but it was really unclear what we were up to last year. All I had planned was to send my two brave volunteers up to Concord to sit in on some public hearings to take notes and report back what they learned, maybe make some connections between members of the UNH community and the members of the legislature. I wasn't really sure, but the pandemic changed our plans and we were relegated to Zoom meetings only. This actually ended up being quite the boon for us as it was a little easier to schedule and record interviews with the folks that we wanted to talk to. And of course, I was blown away by how bright and resilient Ryan and Patrick were through all of this. UNH students tend to blow me away. And I'll be playing their final projects, including this interview that Ryan conducted last year with Dr. Cheryl Smith, Emeritus Professor of Plant Pathology from UNH Department of Agriculture, Nutrition and Food Systems, and our Plant Diagnostic Clinic Director. Before we get into their conversation, I'll start with a little clarification as I've heard from a few folks that the 2018 Farm Bill made it legal to grow hemp in the United States. However, that's not quite right. The bill actually just directed the USDA to establish a national regulatory framework for hemp production in the United States. It was the responsibility of each state to figure out the details on how to regulate the production of hemp in their state, including a testing protocol that ensures that THC content was below some allowable threshold. Many states created these programs, but New Hampshire has no such program, and therefore it was not legal to grow hemp in the state unless, of course, you're registered under the federal program. I've included a link in the show notes if you'd like to learn more about this, and I'll let Ryan take it from here. Hi, my name is Ryan Spellman, and I am an undergraduate biology student at UNH, and I have been working alongside our UNH Extension Specialist in IPM and Entomology, Anna Wallingford, as well as alongside Patrick Kaplan, another undergraduate biology student at UNH. The purpose of our project is to discuss the biological implications of some of the bills crossing the floor at the New Hampshire General Court and provide information from state experts on these biological matters. Today, I wanted to focus on the House Bill 1658, which as it was proposed was intended to enact the establishment and administration to regulate the growing, processing, testing, and marketing of hemp in the state of New Hampshire. Not only does this bill outline the guidelines which pertain to allowable THC limits, pesticide usage, and testing procedures for these things, but also provides penalties and action plans for the failure to meet these state regulations. While this bill did not eventually pass this year, I believe this podcast can serve as an educational resource 
for further hemp bills that may cross the general floor, as well as a New Hampshire state program if it is proposed again. Before we begin, I would like to clarify what I am talking about when I'm referring to THC regulation in hemp. Now, hemp is in the species Cannabis sativa, a species which also contains the marijuana plant. Although hemp and marijuana are the same species, what differentiates the two is their tetrahydrocannabinol, or THC, content. THC is the main psychoactive compound in marijuana and is a Schedule I drug. Thus, in order to be hemp, the plant must contain less than 0.3% THC. Hemp is grown instead for its cannabidiol content, or CBD, rather than its THC content. CBD is known to be non-psychoactive and is used medicinally for its auto-inflammatory and neuroprotectant properties. Now, because hemp is not technically different, a different species than marijuana, there are many considerations which go into creating a hemp product that is less than 0.3% THC. Another note for me, Anna, although folks do grow hemp for a couple other purposes around the world, the Northeastern market primarily focuses on the growth of hemp flowers. This is a rather high input, high value crop, and the cannabidiol that Ryan mentions, it's extracted from hemp using solvents like oils and alcohols to produce those CBD products. This is much different than a crop that's grown for seed and light years different than a crop that's grown for fiber. Hemp seed, aka hemp hearts, and fiber crops tend to be lower input, more like an agronomic crop than a horticultural crop. So like the difference between growing a tomato versus growing wheat versus growing cotton. These commodities all require really different processing and handling. And this is to say that there um, is very little market for hemp hearts in the Northeast and virtually no market for hemp fiber. There's just currently no infrastructure to support this in our region. All right, back to Ryan. So for today's discussion, I would like to focus not only on what goes into growing a hemp product that is low in THC here in New Hampshire and the considerations a grower might need to take to stay within those THC regulations, but also the current state of pesticide usage on hemp and the testing for those pesticide residues. We will also give a quick overview of how, how a grower might currently register to grow hemp in the state through the current federal program. So without further ado, I would like to introduce our guest today, the State Plant Health Health Specialist and Director of the UNH Plant Diagnostic Lab, Cheryl Smith. Welcome, Cheryl, and thanks for coming in to speak to me today. Hello there, Ryan. Um, Cheryl Smith, I'm the Extension Plant Health Specialist uh, and also the Director of the Plant Diagnostic Lab and sort of the unofficial or de facto um, hemp specialist because of my interest in in hemp and helping growers who are interested in, in growing hemp. So. Yeah, so how might growers go about registering um, through the USDA Domestic Hemp Program? And what might they need to know about registering through that? And, and why would it be different than registering through a New Hampshire program? Okay, so a couple, couple of the first things. Um, so the, the hemp bill, House Bill uh, 459, so it went into a legislative study committee that was actually signed off by, by the governor last, uh, I want to say, perhaps August. And the charge to that study committee was to look at and see about the practicality, the viability of having a hemp program in New Hampshire. And 
the one sticking point that made it really seem like that wasn't a viable thing to do in New Hampshire was the number of potential growers versus the cost of running a program in New Hampshire. So there, there weren't enough, a large enough number of growers interested or who had expressed interest in growing in New Hampshire to justify the cost of starting that kind of program in New Hampshire. So therefore, the recommendations from the committee was was not to have a program in New Hampshire and to look at it, you know, say, for instance, a year out after seeing how many people signed up for the federal program as to whether or not that was viable in, in, in New Hampshire. So we've posted some things through the We Meeting Extension, and I wrote this in conjunction or in cooperation with Jennifer Gornett who is head of the uh, regulatory services, director of regulatory service for the New Hampshire Department of Ag Markets and, and Food. So in that article and going to the links, even on the New Hampshire DAMF webpage for that division, you can find a link or questions about the hemp program. And that takes you to the federal hemp program. Right. On that, there's also a link for commercial growers that they link to that and they get to the application. The application's fairly simple. What they do have to do is they have to get an FBI um, record to fill out with that. They get that sent in. The USDA hemp program has basically said that within six to eight weeks, maybe a little bit longer now, given the situation and, and probably reduction in staffing, et cetera, they would review those applications. Uh, the application once approved, they also have to go in and register with their Farm service agency as to where that field is located, GPS coordinates, sides of the field, et cetera, so that from a federal regulatory standpoint, they know where that that field is. Yeah. So it's really not that that difficult. Um, to the best of my knowledge, I think right now we have, let's put it this way, probably as of the end of February, we had three permitted growers in New Hampshire that have been permitted under the federal program. I've inquired with Jennifer if we've had any more come through. I know there are a few people who expressed interest in applying, but whether or not they've done so yet, I don't I don't know. Things that haven't been worked out quite yet is there will be a requirement to have that crop tested to yeah. make sure that the the THC, the active part of that, you know, is what's considered a, a schedule one drug if the THC goes above 0.3. That has to be tested and under the federal program. That testing has to be done by an EPA-approved lab. And the reason for that is because it's a Schedule One drug if it goes over 0.3. So if the crop is hot and it goes over 0.3, it has to be done by a lab that can test that Schedule One drug. Right, okay. So it has to be an EPA-approved lab. And our closest lab, um, talking with Jennifer, is in New York. So exactly how that testing is going to happen with our New Hampshire growers right. has not been finalized yet. So in all likelihood, what's probably going to happen is someone from our state department of ag may go collect the samples from the grower and then and then the grower will pay to have those sent or the state will pay to have them sent to the testing lab in New York. But that hasn't been finalized yet what that process will be. So the discussion of this THC testing procedure is actually a good segue into my next question. So as you mentioned that there is a federal limit of 0.3% in your hemp product, 0.3% THC. As I did a little bit of research on this 0.3% THC limit, I found that there's a lot of complexity to attaining a low THC content plant. 
and it seems like there's a lot of genetic considerations as well as management practices on the grower side that can affect this level. Taking into consideration the current research on this topic, what might a grower need to do to mitigate the risk of overshooting or letting their field go hot with THC level? Larry Smartin, his, his research is a graduate student at Cornell University, just did a study and they were looking at, at some of that, you know, genetics versus cultural growing conditions that affect the THC levels. And what they actually ended up finding out was that it's really all to do with the genetics and not so much to do with how the crop is grown. There's been thoughts in the past that, you know, whether stress, drought, et cetera, can raise or lower the, the THC level. The work that they did looking at different, you know, there's different ways to describe them. They're either strains or clones. Uh, we might think of them as, as cultivars or varieties, but they're kind of really looking at strains. Mm-hmm. And what they found through the Cornell research was that the major re- reason the plants go hot, have too high a THC content, is really all to do with genetics. So the genetics, they can either have two, two genes um, for THC production or two genes for CBD production, or one gene of each. And so what it kind of came down to is that really the genetics and looking for plant breeding now in in hemp is going to be really looking for strains or clones that have two CBD producing genes, so that it's less likely that they're going to have a high THC content. North Carolina and Kentucky those two states have been had the programs underneath even the, the 2014 farm bill, which allowed for research for um, hemp. Right. So they've been testing different strains for a long period of time and new strains come out. They'll test them over a year, a couple of years. And if they test high over a period of time or repeatedly test high, they become a, a not allowed a strain to grow. There's different times of the year that those THC levels can go up and down. And I think some of it depends upon you know, the size of the crop, perhaps a little bit about the stresses, but they know with some of the crops, as reading some of the stuff out of Kentucky, with some of those those clones, they're really recommending that you're harvesting them. You don't let them get too over mature, you don't because then the THC tends to creep up on them. So the the timing of testing is also an important consideration, would you say, for like testing laboratories and Yep. So I went to a, a hemp research conference in October down in Kentucky last October. And one of the things they were talking about there is that a lot of the growers who've been growing hemp for a while will tend to pay and have their own testing done. And typically the, the states or the federal program will test them once the plants go into flower. Okay. Um, so that if that particular strain flowers, say in August, they'll have to test it in August. If another strain goes into flower in late September or October, they'll test that. So each strain gets tested, not just one broad across the field. If you're growing multiple strains, every strain needs to have a test done. Some of the growers will test periodically during the season to make sure that they're monitoring where the THC level is. And if it looks like it's creeping up and it's going to get above that allowable level, they'll harvest early. What the federal testing program is looking at, and even state programs, they're testing the top three to five inches where the the flowers are located. And of course, for, for CBD content, you're not looking for seeds. You're really looking for the, the flowers without seeds in them. That's what they're looking to test for because those are where the glandular hairs are most concentrated. And that's where the, the CBD and THC is going to be most concentrated. Okay. So kind of 
along the li lines of, you know, the support that growers might have for a crop like this, um, I know a lot of your assignment is to uh, test for plant disease and get in plant uh, disease samples from growers. What right. is the current situation for you being able to handle, um, you know, and help growers manage disease and bring in samples? My understanding is that since this is now a federally allowable crop, um, it is legal to grow in New Hampshire. We do have growers producing that that we can take in samples into the diagnostic lab. We can go out to the field and, and work with these growers. So if the grower has a federal permit, which that's the only way you can grow hemp in New Hampshire is with a federal permit, it's considered a legal crop. Now we're not regulatory, so I'm not gonna be able to test a plant when it comes in to find out what the THC content is, but if they send me a copy of their federal permit, when that sample comes into the lab, then my assumption is that that is a legal crop that they're growing and I'll look at it in terms of diseases that are present on it. And that's, that's the way that a couple of my counterparts in different areas of the country are operating as, as well. That's the way they do it down in Kentucky and Virginia. That's how they're looking at it as well. And I think Vermont, the same thing. So those growers are either state permitted if they have a state program or federally permitted if there is no state program, then we can take those samples in. So really, a lot of the extension resources will be available regardless of whether it's a USDA program versus the New Hampshire state program, if it were adopted. That doesn't really change. Right. One of, one of the differences, though, so that if this was a marijuana crop, so, so we do have some medicinal marijuana production. Right. We can't do anything with those. Because that's a Schedule One drug, and, and as a federally funded program, we can't take any samples from them. Okay, so that's where the distinction of hemp becomes really important. Correct. So as I was researching, I saw some notes about pathogen testing, and that may be a requirement. And, and for those of you that might not be aware, um, when I'm talking about pathogens, I'm talking about plant pathogens, plant diseases. And I'm assuming the major concern there is that these pathogens might be re releasing what we call mycotoxins or toxins that are toxic to humans when we consume this CBD product. Can you talk a little bit about maybe what that testing would look like, um, what they're testing for? Yeah, and, and I think that that testing is going to primarily be at, at the production side. Okay. So I think in terms of, you know, there are, there are some commercial testing labs um, available. I had a conversation uh, back probably in February, early March, actually, with a company that produces uh, test kits and can also do testing. So you can send samples to them for testing. They do test for mycotoxins. They test for particular pathogens. So if somebody wants to know, even before powdery mildew is visible, is there powdery mildew on the plants? Right. And I think this is aimed at fairly big production when it's going into commercial products. So if you have a big commercial processor that is taking a hemp crop in, it's going into some type of medicinal product and they want to make sure that there's, you know, there's no mycotoxins in that, or they want to make sure that it's a high quality and that there's no pesticide residues, then there is that kind of testing. But right now, I don't think there's any federal testing that's looking at that. Okay. 
so the the growers in New Hampshire might really need to be on top of their pest management for these diseases because down the production line, because these are being made into a lot of concentrated products, that might become an issue if they're selling product with a certain amount of pathogen on it. Right. And I think that's, so if that local producer is going to do what's called, they're vertically integrating their their operation. So they're growing, harvesting, drying, processing, and right. selling an end product, then it's their end product. As far as I know, there, there isn't a federal testing program now that looks at, at that end product for any of those type of you know potential contaminants or problems. But if that grower is selling that crop to a, a commercial processor, and say, for instance, that processor is getting the oil and then selling it again to someone else, or perhaps that processor themselves are developing a commercial product, they may have particular standards that that grower needs to meet. So that grower would need to then find out what those standards are from that processor and then meet those, meet those standards. And whether or not that's having a testing lab tested or whether or not the processor themselves gets a sample and then tests, tests it, I think that's still yet to be determined. How, we don't have any processors in New Hampshire, you know, right. commercial processors. You know, you had asked a, a question quite a while back, you know, what are, what are some of the, the risks? And so, you know, no real risk in terms of there's not a lot of investment in getting a permit, but the real risk comes in investing in the crop. The seeds are expensive. They yeah. can be up to a dollar or more per seed mm-hmm. on the clone. If you're buying transplants, they can be, a couple dollars a transplant, up to four to six dollars a transplant, depending again upon clone and who you're getting them from. And then if if the grower themselves don't have a lot of experience in, in at growing agricultural crops, that's a learning curve. Right. And if they don't have a processor, how they're going to harvest that, how they're going to dry it in order to keep the crop in good shape, and then what are they going to do with it afterwards? So there was a I forget what the exact average was last year or what the percentage was, but it was a very high percentage of the crop nationally last year that actually the crop loss was really high. And some of that was to do with the weather in the fall when the crop was just coming into maturity. We had awful weather and hurricanes and extended wet weather that a lot of the field field ended up getting damaged or flooded or lodging of the plants, or they just had a lot of mold on the crop or they couldn't get it to dry adequately once they did harvest it and it, it molded. And because, they, I mean, hemp is a very high value crop when you're looking at it, you know, even in comparison to vegetables, you know. Right. So that that is definitely probably going to fuel your disease management and things like that. And you're putting a lot of money into this crop. So I guess that gets us into a little bit about, I know I posed a question on, disease management, as I was digging around to see, okay, so because this is such a new regulated crop, a lot of the pesticides that we have for other crops, nothing on the label says they can be used for hemp. And I I saw that they're updating a list on um, the EPA of what can be used. And as I was looking through that, it seemed to be, you know, there were about 20 or so biopesticides and only one conventional pesticide. So I was wondering if you could give me a little bit of an explanation of those differences for people who might not know what the difference is between uh, biopesticide and conventional pesticide, and then, um, you know, what might be the limitations of pest management for a crop like hemp? Well, well, some of it is, is again, and, and you alluded to that, is that it's, it's such a new crop, a lot of agrochemical companies, be they 
companies that are producing natural products that are considered biopesticides or some of our, our synthetic products that are quote unquote considered conventional products. So with, with our, our, what we're calling biological products, they might be something that's a natural product, like say for instance, a, a potassium bicarbonate is a natural product that's used to mineral product that's used to control something like powdery mildew. You could have something that's a, some type of oil-based product. It might have a soybean oil in it or something like that, that again is considered a natural product that might be used to control something like aphids or powdery mildew. And you can have a synthetic chemical that can be produced and used on the crop. I think some of the reasons why we have so few synthetic chemicals on them one is because the nature of the of the crop, similar to medical marijuana, you know, you have something that may be ingested, something that's used for medicine. So the tendency, I think, is to not go towards conventional or synthetic chemicals and trying to go to more natural disease and insect control, pathogen and insect control for those. You know, a lot of the different companies that produce some of these biological or some people may refer to them as biorational products is because it's considered safer Right. They have a wider label. Oftentimes it's said can be used on crops. It may not specify or the target pest is on it. We'll see more and more coming along on this. There were more companies that were supposed to be registering products with EPA. I found this out at the, the, the meetings and the conference back in October, but they pulled their applications through the EPA review process because it had taken so long for the interim USDA rule to come out. And it is an interim rule. It's not a final rule. So there will be adjustments to it. So I think we'll see more companies probably try and register products for use on hemp, but it's going to be a little bit slow coming. So what that leads to is that there are some products that have good track records for controlling particular pathogens or pests on other crops. They haven't been tested for a long time on hemp. Right. But I think I think we'll see that change. But right now it's those products that have probably been used in obviously maybe in, in medical marijuana in enclosed production or shelf, you know, protected culture and also maybe been used on herbs. Okay. So again, thinking in terms of edible crops. Mm-hmm. So I think some of the rules of thumb that are happening in some states is they're looking at it and saying has, has to be a product that's on the target pest has to be a product that has a very wide crop host range and then there's also something that might be registered for edible crops. And most of the states look at it this way. If it's on the approved EPA list and it's registered in that state, because not every state has every one of those products registered. So it's got to meet those two, two things. It has to be on the EPA approved list and it has to be registered in your state as a pesticide Okay. before you can use it in that state. So there's things on the EPA list that we don't have registered in New Hampshire. Okay, so growers really need to do their due diligence to figure out what's allowable in the state. Right, and, and some of those, those pesticide companies may not have yet registered products in New Hampshire because the market is so small. Right, okay. So there's, there's a cost associated with registering a product in every state. New Hampshire has one of the lowest registration costs. I think it's, I don't know, let's say it's $110 a product, but if you only have three producers in New Hampshire, your your payback on that may not be be very high. Whereas if you're looking at a thousand producers in North Carolina, it's worthwhile to register those products in North Carolina. Okay. Yeah, I think that's pretty much most of the questions I had for you. 
Um, Good. Great. Okay. Well, thank you for chatting with me. And I'm hoping for those of you that are listening, that conversation with Cheryl Smith was helpful when it comes to making future hemp legislation and just educational altogether. So like Cheryl said, this particular bill did not pass. They basically decided it was not worth establishing a a program in New Hampshire to regulate hemp growth. To this date, we are aware of only a handful of people who are registered under the federal program. So we kind of figure why develop a whole program if there's only a handful of people taking advantage of, of growing this new crop. I think there's a lot to learn about how we grow and produce these crops, but first we need to have a market to support that many growers and then maybe a program to do that so thanks to cheryl for helping us out thanks to ryan and thanks to you for listening relative to new hampshire is a production of unh cooperative extension an equal opportunity educator and employer all music is used by permission or Creative Commons licensing. UNH Cooperative Extension is a nonpartisan organization. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of the university, its trustees, or its volunteers. Inclusion or exclusion of commercial enterprises in this podcast does not equate endorsement. The University of New Hampshire, New Hampshire counties, and the U.S. Department of Agriculture cooperate to provide extension programming in the Granite State. This podcast in particular was made possible by the UNH Extension Internship Program. If you're interested in supporting great work like this for the future, learn more at extension.unh.edu internships.